This is the audio-only version of the debate that took place live on YouTube last night. It's a devil's advocacy debate where both Trent and Ben present the opposite views to the ones that they traditionally hold. It's quite a long one. This conversation was structured in a formal style. And if you want to see that formal style before you listen, head on over to YouTube. You can also leave any comments there as well. And if you want to see the PowerPoint that Ben uses for his opening statement, you can see that there as well. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion, and life. Once a week, every week, we aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world, delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination, and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why someone holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's amazing to have you with us each and every week. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to this When Belief Dies debate, the first of its kind. Uh, very excited to yeah, have our guests with us and to be doing this with you all. Um, so I kind of wanted to give you a bit of an overview before I invite the guests in to begin to um, yeah, have this debate. Um, essentially, kind of um, what is a devil's advocacy debate? It's kind of a bit of a weird one. I know a lot of people ask me this um, on, on Twitter and stuff. So essentially, a devil's advocacy debate is where two people take the size they don't usually uphold. Um, so for instance, Trent is pro-life and Trent today is going to be arguing for the best pro-life position that he can and Ben is pro-choice and Ben's going to be arguing for the best um, pro-life choice that he can so they're taking the opposite sides to the ones that they usually hold and argue for um, why are we doing this it's, it's a weird one and abortion is obviously quite a big topic that uh, can ruffle a lot of feathers um, which is understandable and the desire really is to improve the discourse on this subject and to understand more effectively the other side why are people having these conversations and the sorts of reasons they give the arguments they do? And essentially, we want to present each side as well as we possibly can. It's the idea, essentially, of strongmanning, presenting something as well as you possibly can, even though it isn't the position you naturally hold yourself. So the format for the debate is all in the description. So if you're unsure, head over to YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. should be in the description of the video for you there. Um, I've got Daniel in the chat, basically making sure that things are going okay and looking at questions along with Roger in the background. Um, we have an array of questions ready lined up, but we want to ask you, obviously, listeners, there is the option to present any questions that you want to during this function. Um, essentially, there are going to be different ways that questions are going to be coming up. So I'll break that down in just a second. But to start off with, we really want to have your questions. This is what we're here for. We want Trent and Ben to answer these questions and to really think and push these, this conversation forwards. Um, okay, so there's two question times. Essentially, there's going to be a question time when they're both in character and a question time when they're both out of character. The time when they're in character is going to be a quick fire question round where we're going to present 10 different questions from the audience and both Trent and Ben are going to answer those within a minute each. And then we're going to move on to the next question after they've both had a minute to answer that question. And the second question round essentially is going to be a, a bit of a longer format. So we're going to be having five questions where both Trent and Ben have the ability to answer these questions for two minutes each. And that's going to be out of character. That's going to be back into their sort of normal everyday 
everyday uh, views and they're going to be kind of having a conversation around sort of what 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 it is they presented and why they argued um, as they answered those questions so there is the opportunity to super chat if you want to support the podcast um, and youtube channel and that'd be fantastic um we're going to try and prioritize super chats over every other sort of question but we're also going to be trying to collate questions if needed to be able to present them in a really clear format so yeah that should come up here as well and just to say whilst you're here it'd be fantastic if you'd hit like subscribe and then hit that notification bell um so let me introduce our guests so trent horn holds a master's degree in theology and currently serves as staff apologist for catholic answers and ben watkins is a philosopher engineer writer progressive humanist and host of the real atheology podcast which is a philosophy of religion podcast let's get our guests into the conversation trent ben it's great to have you both here it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I don't want to take up any more time. I'm aware that I, I rambled for a little bit just then. So um, I think it'd be good just to essentially crack on if that's okay. So um, essentially we've got our 10 minute openings to begin and all I'm going to be doing is just keeping track of time um, as needed. I'll kind of just jump in and just say, okay, it's time to kind of start wrapping things up, etc. cetera. Um, but to start with, um, Ben, I believe you're going to be opening up for us for the first 10 minutes. So um, I'll hit start as soon as you're ready and, and we'll go from there. All right, I will share my screen with you now. And let me know when you can see my screen. Can you see it? Yes, now it's now in the conversation. Sweet. Okay, I want to start by sincerely thanking Sam and the Wind Belief Dies channel for inviting me to this Devil's Advocate debate, and I want to thank Trent for agreeing. Trent and I have had fun engaging and substantive discussions in the past, and I doubt today will be any different. So let's get started. Let me begin with a preliminary remark. I will assume David Hume's famous distinction between is and ought, or roughly the distinction between science and morality. There is no controlled science experiment that will settle the question of abortion, and no moral conclusion will follow from scientific facts. With that said, let's look at my main argument. Premise A claims that prenatal humans are living humans. Premise B is the most controversial premise one, and one nearly all pro-choicers reject. So two of my arguments will defend it. Premise B claims all humans have a right to life. Therefore, conclusion C follows. Prenatal humans have a right to life. Premise D is a moral assumption. We have a powerful pro-tonto moral reason not to kill what has a right to life. So conclusion E follows from premise D. We have a powerful pro-tonto moral reason not to kill a prenatal human. If premise B is more probable than its negation given certain moral and metaphysical assumptions, then we at least have a pro-tonto moral reason against elective abortions. My probable pro-life argument is a rebutting defeater for pro-choice. I'll now focus on giving reasons for accepting premise B in a qualified form. Recall I'm arguing there is a powerful pro-tonto reason not to kill you or me. So all else being equal, you and I should not be killed. But what explains this fact? I think a likelihood inequality will help us see why pro-life better explains this fact than pro-choice. Pro-life confers a probability of exactly one on the observation we should not be killed. So it entails an observation all parties to the discussion concede. However, pro-choice does not entail this observation unless we make additional moral and metaphysical assumptions. I want to argue that what explains the truth of this likelihood inequality is that the prior probability, that is the probability given other moral and metaphysical assumptions, of pro-life is greater than that of pro-choice because it is simpler. 
When I claim that pro-life is simpler than pro-choice, I mean it's both more modest and more coherent with the moral and metaphysical assumptions we accept before even asking the abortion question. By more modest, I mean pro-life is less arbitrary. For pro-life draws a principal distinction between humans that should not be killed and humans that may. I'll soon explain this distinction. Pro-choice, on the other hand, arbitrarily excludes prenatal humans from the class of beings that should not be killed. This arbitrary distinction comes at the theoretical cost of modesty, because pro-choice will have to make additional moral and metaphysical assumptions to make probable the observation that you and I should not be killed. It might be objected pro-choice affords more coherence with our moral and metaphysical assumptions at the cost of being less modest. I will argue this is not so for at least three reasons. The first is Don Marquis' future-like-ours argument. The second is an arg argument from Alexander Pruss. And the last is one from Moral Risk. The first argument I'll give in favor of premise B comes from the philosopher Don Marquis and claims that a future like ours or flow implies a right to life. And nearly all humans, including prenatal humans, have a future like ours. Therefore, nearly all humans have a right to life. The future of a prenatal human includes a set of experiences, goals, and acts relevantly similar to those of postnatal humans like you and me. The loss of a prenatal human's future of value from an induced abortion is at least as great as the loss of the future of value lost from the killing of a postnatal human. I argue this is a sufficient condition for having our for our having a protonto reason not to kill any human. These claims are also in deep tension with pro-choice. These moral and metaphysical assumptions do not cohere, cohere well with pro-choice. My next argument comes from the philosopher Alexander Pruss and will probably be my most difficult, so I will break it down into three digestible stages. The first stage begins with a question about what makes something the same unified entity through time. It's natural to suppose my mother was once pregnant with me, but this can actually be argued for. Firstly, the prenatal human, call it Fee, that once lived in my mother's womb never died. So Fee must still exist in some form. Secondly, the parts and features of Fee continuously grew into mine. If we ask where Fee is now, the obvious answer is exactly where I am. But there can't be multiple physical objects of the same size and shape in the exact same location. Thus, Fee and I are one in the same entity. So much for the first stage. The second stage draws our attention to the metaphysics of identity claims. If two things are one and the same, then they have all the same essential properties. I have the property of having a right to life, essentially. I'm also one and the same entity as Fee, so it follows that Fee also has the property of having a right to life, essentially. This also makes sense of a common moral intuition that the earlier I am killed, the greater the harm, because I am deprived of more life than if I were killed later. So much for the second stage. The third and final stage is the easiest. It draws our attention to the fact that there is no moral difference between me when I was a prenatal human and you when you were a prenatal human. If I had a right to life when I was a prenatal human and there is no moral difference between me, you, and any other human with a future like ours, then it follows that all humans with a future like ours have a right to life. But nearly all humans have a flow. Again, we've arrived at my premise B. 
My final argument involves moral intuitions. We have given uncertainty. Here's how Cameron Bertuzzi has illustrated it. Suppose you are hired to demolish a building. As project manager, you hire a team of experts to get the job done. When the time arrives to press the trigger, you ask your safety officer if she is positive there is no one left in the building. She replies, I did a walkthrough last night and didn't see anyone, but I'm not 100% sure. It's clear what ought to be done at this point. Given the small but reasonable chance someone is still in the building, you ought to postpone the demolition. Going forward at this point would be morally reckless and negligent. I think we can mirror this reasoning. If there is a non-negligible chance all humans with a future like ours have a right to life, then we have a powerful pro-tanto reason not to kill them, so we morally ought to fail conservative. Give my, or given my argument so far, there is a non-negligible chance all humans with a future like ours have a right to life. Further, nearly all humans, including prenatal humans, have a future like ours. Therefore, we all morally ought to fail conservative. We've arrived now at a qualified version of premise B from my probable pro-life argument. In conclusion, I want to recap my case. I labeled my main contention premise B. It claims that all humans with a future like ours have a right to life. If this claim is conceded along with my preliminary remarks and moral assumptions, then it follows we have a powerful pro-tanto moral reason against nearly any elective abortion. This conclusion is also directly bolstered by my failed conservative argument. Based on the non-negligible chance that humans with a future like ours have a right to life, the preceding reasoning might give us a definitive answer to the question of abortion. I've argued poor pro-life is a higher prior probability than pro-choice. That is a higher, pro pro higher probability of being true given other moral and metaphysical assumptions. I then defended this claim by arguing that pro-life is both more modest and more coherent than pro-choice. Pro-life is more modest because it makes no arbitrary exception to the moral principle that all humans have a right to life. I then gave at least three arguments for the claim pro-life is more coherent given certain moral and metaphysical assumptions. The first of these arguments was that all humans have a morally relevant future like ours, or flow. My second argument claimed I am one and the same entity as a prenatal human. In the past, we called fee, and there is no moral difference between me, fee, and all other humans with a flow. Finally, I argued there is a non-negligible chance with a flow um, to have a right to life. So we have a powerful pro-tanto moral reason not to kill nearly any human, which is to say we should fail conservative. I'll go ahead and end there. Thanks, Ben. Bring that out. Fantastic. Okay. Trent, over to you as soon as you're ready. I will hit go on my timer. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Sam for hosting this debate. Uh, it's fun to be debating Ben again. We had a lot of fun last time, and I think we'll have a lot of fun this time. Uh, the issue of abortion is very controversial. So I hope both of us today can generate more light than heat uh, as we debate it. Uh, I'll be, even though I am pro life, I'm going to be defending the pro-choice position that abortion is not morally wrong, and so it should remain legal. However, this does not mean that I think every argument for the pro-choice position is sound. Just as there are terrible arguments for the pro-life position, there are terrible arguments for the pro-choice position, and they often mimic one another. For example, pro-lifers sometimes argue against abortion by pointing out allegedly negative effects that it has on women. Usually the arguments for this conclusion are based on the testimony of post-abortive women, which is not as reliable as medical studies, which have failed to demonstrate that women, on average, suffer worse after having an abortion than from carrying a pregnancy to term. 
But even if we were to grant this assumption, it wouldn't prove abortion is immoral or it ought to be illegal because we tolerate many things that are bad for you. Legal activities like smoking tobacco, drinking alcohol, eating fast food, etc. Likewise, pro-choice advocates sometimes argue that abortion is moral or should be legal simply because it has many positive effects for women. Uh, allows them better plan their families, avoid financial, physical, and emotional stresses associated with an unintended pregnancy. Moreover, keeping abortion legal has the positive effect of reducing the number of women who may be harmed by choosing illegal abortions. But like our bad pro-life argument, this argument fails because we outlaw many things that provide people with positive benefits, like bank robbery or insurance fraud. Uh, we do this even if outlawing these activities makes them riskier for those who engage in them. As the pro-choice philosopher Marianne Warren has said, the fact that restricting access to abortion has tragic side effects does not, in itself, show that restrictions are unjustified, since murder is wrong regardless of the consequences of prohibiting it. The central issue, then, we must confront is whether the act of abortion is moral or immoral, and if it is immoral, is it so immoral that it ought to be illegal? In order to do that, we need to know what the act of abortion does. For this debate, I'll define abortion as the direct removal of a human embryo or fetus from the uterus with the intent of killing said embryo or fetus. Now, there are cases where this might happen indirectly through something that I think is just abortion by another name, but I'm going to focus my argument on the traditional methods that are used not just to end a pregnancy, but to end a pregnancy with the intent of bringing about the demise of the human embryo or the human fetus. Now, let's address a common pro-life argument. The human embryo or fetus is a human being. Abortion directly kills human beings. Therefore, abortion is immoral and should be illegal. Common but flawed. This argument fails because what makes killing wrong cannot be that it simply ends the life of a human being. First, many pro-life advocates are fine killing some human beings, like people who are brain dead, for example. So it doesn't seem true that the killing of all human beings uh, is wrong. And second, if we encountered a race of intelligent aliens like us who were not human, we'd probably agree it's wrong to kill them, even though they aren't human beings. Most people agree it is wrong when Lex Luthor tries to kill Superman, even though Superman is not a human being. In fact, the issue of aliens brings me to this thought experiment offered by Mary Ann Warren. Imagine you're an astronaut who crash lands on an alien planet. You start to get hungry and wonder which creatures it is okay for you to eat. After all, there could be people on this planet who look nothing like the people you know from Earth. So appearance or biology won't help you determine which beings on the planet are fair game for food and which are not. Instead, I bet you would look for certain criteria that would show one of these alien beings is a person and thus impermissible to kill. What criteria are those? What would you look for to determine if these things are persons or not? Here's a quote from Marianne Warren that I think some summarizes it very well. She writes, I suggest that the traits which are most central to the concept of personhood or humanity in the moral sense are very roughly the following five. One consciousness of objects, events external, internal to the being, and in particular, the capacity to feel pain. Two, reasoning, the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems. Three, self-motivated activity, activity which is relatively independent 
of bio of genetic or direct external control. Uh, number four, the capacity to communicate by whatever means messages of an indefinite variety of types. That is not just with an indefinite number of possible contents, not like a monkey banging on a typewriter who eventually gets to Shakespeare, but on indefinitely many possible topics. And number five, the presence of self-concepts and self-awareness, either individual, racial, or both. So Warren goes on to write, all we need to claim to demonstrate that a fetus is not a person is that any being which satisfies none of capacities one through five, if you cannot satisfy any of conditions one through five, you are not a person. She writes, I consider this claim to be so obvious that I think anyone who denied it and claimed that a being which satisfied none of conditions one through five was a person all the same would thereby demonstrate he had no notion at all of what a person is. Even animals like mice or snakes have rudimentary consciousness, but human embryos and fetuses prior to the 20th week of life lack even that. They are not aware of anything and never have been aware of anything. As a result, they cannot possibly be persons, and they can't be harmed by being killed since they're not aware of anything, and so they have no desire to live that the act of killing would frustrate. We even recognize that mice and snakes who have some awareness can still be killed because their level of awareness is just so far below what constitutes a person. And an embryo or fetus is even lower than that. Uh, and any reason to, to favor the mere biological life of a fetus over any other being merely because of its DNA, that would be discrimination. That would be speciesism. Uh, we don't do that for DNA conferring racial characteristics. Why should we do it for DNA conferring um, species membership. And let me also offer a thought experiment that shows deep down we understand the wrongness of killing has nothing to do with ending the life of a human organism, but everything to do with ending the existence of a person. Let me give you two thought experiments. Imagine a mad scientist has kidnapped you and threatened to either destroy your mind and body or only destroy your mind by wiping all of your memories. Which one would you choose? I suspect most people would find both options equally horrifying. At the very least, they would say in either case, we have you didn't survive this ordeal. But if the pro-life view were correct, we and we are identical to a physical organism, it would seem intuitively we would choose to have only our memories destroyed and think we had survived even though we are now profoundly disabled. And to change the thought experiment a little further, experiment number two, uh, suppose the mad scientist says that we have the choice to either have our body destroyed and our mind uploaded to a computer, or we can have our mind destroyed through the memory wipe and uh, keep our bodies. Most people would at least want their mind preserved, and many would say that if this happened, that they would have survived the ordeal. But all this shows the pro-life view is false. We are not identical to organisms, especially embryonic or fetal human organisms. Uh, we are persons who come into existence once we possess rational thought and have an enduring sense of self over time. And if that is true, abortion can't be immoral because no human fetus has any of the features to make them persons that we can't kill. Uh, so finally, I think the pro-choice position I've articulated, I know Ben has talked about simplicity. I think my view is simpler. Uh, it explains why we would save a adult or even uh, a small child in a fire rather than a tank of 100 frozen embryos. It explains why pro-lifers don't spend a lot of money trying to save 
embryos that are going to be miscarried. They don't do that very much. Uh, it explains why pro-lifers resist legal punishments for women who choose abortion. It explains all these things, that they're, they're simply not persons. And it does all this without positing strange metaphysical claims about the embryo or fetus, simply saying that persons have a right to life. So in that respect, I hope you will agree with me and recognize that all persons have a right to life and a right to control their own bodies. Thank you. Thank you, Trent. Fantastic. Right. Let me get five minutes up. Okay, so we're going to be moving to our first rebuttals, five minute first rebuttals. Um, Ben, once again, we're going to be starting with you, if that's okay. Let me know when you are ready, and I will hit go on my timer. I'm ready to go. Let me start off by thanking Trent Horn for his opening. Trent gave some examples that will helpfully illustrate the explanatory power and scope of Marquise's future like ours argument using his examples of killing animals. Supposing it's permissible to kill animals, it's not because they belong to another species with different DNA. Rather, they lack the potential for a sufficiently meaningful future like ours. Trent insisted only persons should not be killed. And because prenatal humans are not persons, prenatal humans may be killed. Let me try to respond. Suppose Trent is right and prenatal humans are not persons. The obvious response here is, so what? I make no use of the moral concept of persons. Instead, I insisted prenatal humans do have a future of value. Killing deprives them of. In other words, killing a prenatal human harms it. This is true even if a prenatal human is unaware. Similarly, killing a comatose adult who has a non-negligible chance of recovering harms her, even though she is unaware of it. Moreover, harming prenatal humans wrongs that human because the harm is bad in virtue of being bad for that human, not solely in virtue of being bad for others who receive fewer benefits from that human if it is harmed. This last point is a nod to the dissertations of both Elizabeth Harmon and Russell de Silvestro. But is Trent right that prenatal humans are not persons? I'm skeptical. All of the capacities Trent regards as distinctive of persons, like consciousness, desires, reasoning, self-motivation, communication, and self-awareness, are present in prenatal humans, just in a latent state. These are capacities that the vast majority of prenatal humans are sure to develop by growing and learning if we let them live. They arguably are persons already, not just potentially. Adult humans who sustain severe brain damage and lose all the aforementioned capacities or even all her memories are still persons, provided she, like a prenatal human, can acquire those capacities later on. Whether she is the person she used to be is another matter, but that is irrelevant here. Trent also gave an embryonic rescue argument as a reductio of my premise B. He asks us to imagine a moral dilemma where we can only rescue either a hundred embryos or a single toddler from a burning building. When presented with this dilemma, most people's overwhelming moral intuition is we ought to save the single toddler and not the hundred embryos. I agree and can try to account for this. The fact both toddlers and embryos have rights to life does not imply it would be better for one toddler to die than a hundred embryos. To have a right to life is for others to have an obligation to let one live when they can do so without flouting other obligations. Such an obligation says nothing about how bad it would be for the being to die. 
it may well be that the toddler's death would be a hundred times as bad as any of the embryo's deaths. After all, there are morally relevant differences between the toddler and the embryos. First, the toddler will die a painful and terrifying death, whereas the hundred embryos won't. Second, there is a significant uncertainty as to whether the hundred embryos will survive this event, but it is nearly certain the toddler will. And third, there will be harm involved to those closely related to the toddler, whereas few are likely to care deeply about the embryos. I think this matters morally. Similarly, if it is less pressing to save an embryo from miscarriage than abortion, which involves intending to end the embryo's life, but even if we were no less pressing, my view would not entail we ought to save embryos from miscarriages. Rights to life are not rights to being rescued, just rights to being allowed to live. A conscious human it a conscious human at risk of being burned to death probably has a right to being rescued by passersby, but an embryo at risk of miscarriage or fiery destruction does not, even assuming a right to life. Trent points out pro-lifers resist legal punishment of women who have abortions, but perhaps we do not resist punishment of women specifically. I suspect we just resist severe punishment of any reasonable party, opting instead for moderate deterrence measures. For the responsible parties do not mean to wrong anyone or anything. They believe abortion is morally on par with chopping down trees. So they are far less culpable than murderers who intentionally kill other persons. Manslaughter is clearly worse because its perpetrators carelessly endanger the lives of those they know have rights to life. But abortion shares a wrong-making feature with murder, knowingly depriving a being of a future like ours. Perhaps responsible parties should face some sort of legal consequences. They just shouldn't be severe. Uh, how am I for time? I should probably go ahead and end there. That was, yeah, that was it. Perfect. Sweet. Amazing. That's what okay. a perfect world looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Throwback. Cool. Trent, not yet. Ready. Oh, here go. not <laughs> yet. It has still not come to fruition. It is in a state <laughs> of journeying. Uh, well, all right, let me, um, and we have five minutes, I think. Okay. Uh, Ben, thank you. That was a really great rebuttal. Uh, I'm going to touch on some of the points Ben made in his rebuttal in my next address here. I just want to focus on some of the things that he said, uh, in his opening statement. So Ben is basically arguing from probability. Like imagine a seesaw, right? You have a seesaw. It tips to pro-life or pro-choice. Where does the evidence stack? Uh, and he thinks it's prior probability is to pro-life. It tips in that direction because the pro-life position is simpler. It's just saying all human beings have a right to life. Now, I agree it's simpler than many other complex pro-choice positions. Uh, there are other pro-choice positions that are arbitrary. They try to divide personhood through arbitrary biological categories like viability or birth. But, but notice in my opening statement, I never mentioned drawing lines at birth or viability or any kind of biological category like that. I instead, my position is just as, if not simpler than his, because I said personhood is what gives you a right to life. And I stuck with just that specific functional concept. Uh, so I don't think that his view is, it's at least as simple as mine, if not mine is simpler than his. But let's look at some of Ben's arguments to say why the seesaw should tip towards the pro-life side. Um, first, he mentioned Don Marquis's future like ours argument. What makes killing human beings wrong? Well, it deprives them of a future like ours. You kill a frog. A frog doesn't have a future like ours. That's why it's, it's different. 
Superman would have a future like ours. It'd be wrong to kill him. So I give him credit. This is not a species centric argument. Uh, the biggest problem here, though, is that in the uncontroversial cases like me or Ben or Superman, we have a psychological connection to our future. OK, uh, we desire our future. And that, I think, is the most grievous wrong. And when we deprive someone of it, uh, if the argument's taken so far, I mean, do um, eggs and sperm have a future like ours? Is it murder to use contraception? What if I had a pill that I could, uh, and let's take a serum. I inject a cat with a serum and it will give that cat a right to life. Okay, or sorry, it will give that cat rational abilities. If I don't inject the cat with the serum that gives the cat rational abilities, have I deprived the cat of a future like ours? Have I committed murder? It, it doesn't seem very intuitive to me. Uh, maybe Ben's next argument will fare a little better. He tried to argue from uh, continuity uh, that we are, you know, I, we are organisms. I was once a fetus. I was conceived. I developed in the womb. Uh, but this argument really tries to, it seems to assume what it tries to prove uh, when it says very much that I was conceived or I was in the womb. I was a fetus. Uh, I think that's kind of folk language that we shouldn't necessarily take literally. So I guess I can put it this way. I'll, I'll grant Ben's point. We're biological organisms. We were in the womb in a sense. But I think what's carrying his intuition here is that foundationally, we are not organisms. We are persons. Uh, to give you an analogy, you and I are like a piece of origami. Okay, And when we say origami is a piece of paper, what we mean is the origami is a piece of paper folded a certain way. All right. So when I when we say you and I are organisms, well, what we mean is we're persons whose biological components are folded in a certain way. Uh, so, you know, we yeah, we are organisms, but only the kind of organisms that can engage in rational abilities beyond other non-human animals. We can engage in rational thought, deliberation. That is what makes persons unique from any other being. And we are persons because you and I and everybody listening to this debate, our biological components are folded in that way to make us. So I'll agree with him. Yeah, we're organisms, but more foundationally, we're persons. Uh, so it's more folk language to say that I was uh, conceived or that I was a fetus. Uh, the final argument is kind of a catch-all he gave us. It's like, well, even if we're all balanced out, we, we shouldn't take the risk. Uh, what if this is a human being? Well, I could just invert that argument. You know, What if we're taking a risk that we're infringing on a pregnant woman's right to choose? Uh, I don't necessarily, you know, if, if there's even a chance we're depriving her of fundamental rights, we shouldn't do that. Uh, but I think that I've shown we're, we're beyond the mere agnostic position uh, because I've shown that uh, that in matters pertaining to abortion, only the woman's rights can be infringed because only she is a person. The fetus is not a person because persons have to be capable of rational behavior and thoughts and abilities beyond merely non-human animals. No fetus can do that. They're not a person. Therefore, abortion is not immoral and it ought to be legal. Okay, that was bang on. Thank you as well. Fantastic. Okay, so we're moving to our second rebuttals now and we're going to be starting with Ben once again. Ben, let me know when you're ready and we will start the timer okay i'm good to go okay so i want to kind of just really quickly recap um 
sort of the strategy that I laid out in my opening and then try to respond to some of the um, objections that Trent has raised. And thank you again for uh, giving those objections, uh, Trent. Um, So I started with a preliminary remark about Hume's is-ought distinction. And so one of the things that I wanted to show with that argument, or at least that preliminary remark, is that the question of abortion is not a scientific question. It's not going to turn on some issue of science. Um, I gave Don Marquise's argument a future like ours argument because it's a moral argument. It's about the uh, what is the wrong-making property of acts. Uh, we want to know what a sufficient condition is for some acts to be morally wrong. And so it's their moral considerations. Um, the second argument I gave was uh, one from identity. And so it's a metaphysical argument. It's an argument where if we really dig into the metaphysics of identity, um, how what what answer we land on in the metaphysics of identity will largely dictate you know what we find more more or less plausible about the question of abortion, and then the third was an epistemic one. It was about uncertainty given more you know moral um, information. So it's not scientific. We need moral considerations. We need uh, metaphysical uh, considerations. We need epistemic. Um, Considerations, and so I tried to wrap that up in this one con- simple concept of prior probability. And so Trent raised an objection that he thinks his view is simpler than mine. But recall that the way that I made this argument, I started with a supremely simple form of pro-life that all humans have a right to life, and then the negation of that, which I called pro-choice, was only some humans have a right to life. But we all accepted the observation and moral assumption that you and I have a right to life. So this pro-life hypothesis entails that observation, whereas pro-choice does not. Pro-choice will have to make additional claims in order to actually entail that um, observation. And so I want to say that this at least counts against the simplicity of the pro-choice position that's being put on the table right now, because keep in mind, there's an entire entire moral category of personhood that's being put on the table for the pro-choice position. Again, my view just doesn't have to resort. It doesn't have to use these conceptual tools. And so I think that that's a theoretical virtue. So that's what I would want to say about the simplicity aspect of it. Um, the He also responded to my the metaphysics of Proust's argument by you know saying that it 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 almost seems like it um, assumes what is needed to be proved, and I'll concede in one sense it, it might seem that way because that's just kind of the nature of metaphysics. It's kind of difficult to really grasp those abstract concepts. But I did try to um, argue for the assumption that a fee really did exist, a prenatal humid in the past. Um, that not only existed, but it never died. And its parts and features grew into mine. And so I'm not just assuming that I am one in the same entity as this prenatal human. human uh, I'm also um, arguing for that premise because I want to then say that we have a future of value. These prenatal human as an essential property that they have, they have a future of value. And so we can come back to that moral consideration from Don Marquise again, the future like ours argument. And the moral uh, moral uncertainty argument is really kind of icing on the cake here in the sense that it's saying that, 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 look, this is how we apply 
um, our moral intuitions given money, moral uncertainty when it matters. So it might be the case that um, abortion is seriously wrong, but we shouldn't make it illegal. Um, something like abortion, or not abortion, adultery or infidelity. We agree that it's morally wrong, but we shouldn't make it illegal. Maybe abortion is similar to that. The uncertainty argument is meant to kind of undercut that because, no, it's the, the consequences of adultery are not that someone with a right to life or a future of value was lost. It's It should be illegal because if we don't fail conservative in this way, many innocent uh, human beings will be unjustifiably killed. Um, I think I'm out of time, so I'll go ahead and stop there. Mason, thank you very much. Okay, and we're back to Trent for the second rebuttal. Whenever you're ready, Trent, I'll hit go. Okay, yeah. So I just have a few thoughts here on Ben's position so far. Uh, I, I think one thing that really stuck out to me was he, he said a statement. Uh, I had to do a little bit of a double take was when I said that a, a fetus or an embryo is is not a person, he said, well, well, yeah, it is a person, uh, that it has these latent capacities. Like, yeah, well, maybe it can't think rationally now. Maybe it can't uh, do these kinds of distinct personhood abilities now, but it can do them later. But I just don't think this works because we would say that, that the rights of a person or how we ought to treat a being are in virtue of the capacities it actually has, not its potential. Uh, that uh, I know it's a well-worn truism, but it's worth saying, just as uh, an egg is not a chicken and a, a sapling, or an, a, sorry, an acorn is not an oak tree, uh, a potential person is not an actual person. Uh, even if they can do these feats later, they're just a potential person now. To give you another example, when someone wins the presidential election, they're president-elect, they're a potential president, or let's say a presidential candidate. Like a presidential candidate is a potential president, more so than you or me, but it doesn't mean we give him the nuclear launch codes. He has to become an actual president. And even some actual presidents, maybe we shouldn't do that, but I'll leave that for the rest of you to decide. Um, so I would just say here, I, I just don't understand why why he's grounding this more in the, the being that it has the the future like ours. I brought up the question about psychological connectedness. I do think futures do matter, but they matter to people who want them. Uh, acorns don't want to be oak trees. Eggs don't want to be chickens and embryos don't want to be don't want to be uh, adults. Um, so I think that that's uh, very problematic for his position. Uh, finally, he, about the, the point I raised though, about, um, the, in, it's not intuitive, you know, if the unborn are not persons and I, I apologize, how much time do I have left? Nope. I'm not about after. three minutes. Oh, well, I got plenty of time. Um, <laughs> uh, I had said a few notes here, actually. Uh, one more, one more thing he said was about, um, punishment. Uh, cause, cause I think that this is something that's important that you have, you've got pro-life or you've got people saying that. Uh, oh well, the the woman is who, who obtains an abortion is just as much a victim as as anyone else, and yet we I, I don't see us saying that the same about any other born individuals uh, who commit homicide against persons. Uh, it's very rare for I can't think of any other cases where we say that other people who commit homicide uh, are just as much a victim as as anyone else. To me, I, I find that to be a belittling and a patronizing attitude. Uh, towards women, and maybe that's just what 
pro-lifers do. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's undergirds their position. I don't mean to make an ad hominem, but I'm just trying to figure out what they're, what they're thinking here. Uh, cause Ben said, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's not, he said the example, it's not like cutting down, oh, cutting down trees. He said, you know, well, we do lighter punishments because these women, a lot of them, they don't understand what they're, they're doing. You know, it's, it's like think, thinking maybe they're going to cut down a tree and, and I'll give you that maybe some people who obtain abortions are not aware that they are destroying a human a biological human organism. But it seems like a lot of others use language like uh, my baby died. I killed my baby. So it would seem like they're aware of that. Yet pro-life advocates don't seem to want to hold either the women or men. They don't want to hold men responsible either for these actions, which, which I think under my view makes a lot of sense if the embryo or fetus uh, is not a person, actually. So uh, but that's uh, uh, the, so those are some of the problematic elements that I saw in what um, Ben was saying. And then maybe we can cut through a little bit here more when we more engage each other. But I think that's what I have for now. Well, thank you both for that. That was brilliant. Let me just get my next timer ready. Okay, so we're going to be moving into um, essentially the sort of cross-examination periods now. So this is going to be where you each take it in turns to um, ask the other person questions. Feel free to cut them off whenever you want to. Essentially, it is your 10 minutes to ask whatever you want. And if you want to move the conversation on, I feel absolutely free. Um, so basically, we're going to be starting with Ben. Um, and as soon as you're ready, Ben, I'll hit start. And then, uh, yeah, we're good to go for 10 minutes. Um, yeah, I'm ready to go. Um, so, uh, how does your view of personhood deal with premature infants or those born at the lower bound of viability? Um, so for example, what I have in mind is if a woman had an infant born at, let's say 20 weeks, um, but then decided she no longer wanted to be a parent, would she have the right, on your view, to have it euthanized or killed, you know, induce an abortion? Uh, how far along is a pregnancy, an abortion? Like We'll say 20 weeks. Yeah, we'll say 20 weeks at the lower bound of the viability range. So, oh, well, my, my, yeah. posi my position – now, I will say to you that killing a human organism, there may be other – I'll give you, there may be other reasons it's wrong to do that in spite of it not being a person. But my position would be uh, a fetus at 20 weeks, 30 weeks, 40 weeks. And you you mentioned uh, infants. Um, my position would also entail that that short shortly after birth, for some time period, uh, an infant would not be a person either. As I made clear in my in my rebuttal and what I was saying, my position is is not arbitrary biological criteria. I think it's very simple. So it, it would entail that fetuses and young infants are not persons and there may be conditions where it is permissible to kill them. Um, okay. What do I have is for other questions. Okay. Um, let's suppose a human sustains a brain damage that temporarily takes away her consciousness, um, her desires, her self-awareness, her self-motivation, all those things. Um, and she can only regain these abilities after nine months of rehabilitation and treatment. Um, how do you explain why it is wrong to kill her now? 
Um, so yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think these kinds of cases are are difficult uh, because we're not as familiar with them. When we put forward cases, we should try to use things that are that are as familiar to us. So you're saying this woman? Are you saying that she's in nine months? Will she retain her previous memories or get brand new ones? Uh, it does not specify. So that's the the scenario. Just says that she had that she gets an injury that causes brain damage. Um, and whether this, a new person or some other person wakes up yeah. is, is another question. Um, well, I would say, I'll, that I'll grant that that's a difficult question. Of yeah, identity. I, I would say that if the same person awakens nine months later, it's not that much different from sleep. And I would say that the person still had, um, interests moving forward. Uh, and, and I think that should be respected, but if the person you know, loses their memories. I mean, I guess he doesn't have to have a coma. They just lose all of their memories and they're wiped back to the state of being an infant. My position would be that they wouldn't be a person anymore uh, because I don't, I believe persons have to have abilities beyond what other animals can do. And among humans, that doesn't seem to happen until some point after birth, which we aren't entirely sure. Okay. So I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think I missed it. Um, so, but how, so this person is in the coma, you know, we know that in nine months with rehabilitation and treatment, she'll be able to get better in some sense. Would it be wrong to kill her when she has the brain damage where she, so she doesn't meet those necessary conditions of personhood? Uh, that I would just, say, yeah, it would be, it would be wrong to kill her. Um, if she is still a person, uh, but unless I think about the case more, I just don't know if that's fair. If the injury she has sustained means she is not a person anymore. Um, so I, I guess it depends because, um, cause I said earlier that, uh, the potential for personhood, the potential to act like a person isn't what makes you a person. So it would seem like in that case, because she does, even if she has a potential to act like a person, if she doesn't have that active ability, it doesn't seem like she's a person anymore, regardless of what happens um, later. So I would just say, just in general, people should try not to be accident prone, I, I guess, because we have limited healthcare resources anyways. We should we should marshal them for people who have the most promising avenues. The, yeah. So the, the, the reason that I asked this question is because I think that the pro-life view can give a simple explanation of the wrongness of killing this person um, in terms of the future of value that a rate a rate awaits her once she recovers. So again, it's, it's trying to reinforce that, you know, this view uh, this pro-life view might be able to explain easier instances where we all agree that it would be wrong to kill this person. Um, but it seems like the pro-choice view might struggle with that particular example. So, um well, I think in any case, we're going to have we're going to have difficulties in explaining different views. Uh, it seems like sure. your view doesn't uh, cover all humans, uh, because if we had uh, someone who is severe, who is uh, very mentally handicapped, I, I wouldn't say they have a future like ours. Um, so I, I, I guess your argument only applies to a majority of human of nearly of all. Yeah, nearly. Of nearly all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. Um so 
we'll move on to another question. Um, okay. I think we kind of got, I think we got our heads around that one a good bit. Um, so let's use another So you mentioned, um, that even if a human has a right to life, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the right to someone else's body, that a woman has rights to bodily autonomy. Um, well, the argument I did make was, uh, I said people have a right to control their bodies. I said persons do. And when you oh, deal, oh, and, I get you. you're right, and, you're right. And I'm when sorry. you, yeah, and when you deal with abortion, there is only one person involved, and that is the woman. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, I wanted to imagine um, a scenario where a woman happens to find a baby in an abandoned cabin in the woods, and she has no way to feed the baby except by mm. using her breast milk. And additionally, it's certain the baby will die unless it is fed the woman's breast milk. Um, is she obligated to do so even if she does not consent as a person to the baby's using her body for nourishment? Yeah, well, so you'll, you'll notice in the position that I gave in the debate to defend the pro-choice position, I'm not making a strict bodily autonomy argument because I believe if you grant personhood to the fetus, you will end up granting many other things beyond just a right to life. That'll also include a right to care for another individual. That what makes persons unique is that uh, persons have have duties to um, to one another. Though, as I said earlier, um, I, I if this is a very young infant, then I guess we could compare it to what if a woman found a golden retriever or a calico cat? Uh, does she have an obligation? Uh, to care for it. Uh, I, I think I would say that because humans value infants more, maybe she would have some kind of a, an obligation to do that. But um, yeah, but but I would say that it, any obligation she would have towards the infant would not be because it's a it's a person. It would, it would probably you know it could be societal expectations. It could be. Like I like I've I've struggled with this, you know. My view entails the wrongness of infanticide, but maybe killing infants is wrong for the same reason it's wrong to destroy a Picasso that you own. It's lots of people want it, and it's it's very unique. So, but um, but, but I, I don't think it would. If it is wrong, it's not due to person; it'd be due to some other prudential or secondary factors. So, to be clear, would you say that this baby that's been found does have a right to use? this woman's body for breast milk. Uh, you know what? I'm going to say that that will depend on an overarching moral framework that I'm not fully decided on yet. For example, if you're a utilitarian, right? If you're a consequentialist who thinks that, well, we have to maximize utility. That's our goal. Then I would say everyone has an obligation to maximize utility. I would say, yeah, the woman has an obligation to, to do that. I would say you have to be plugged into the violinist uh, because those harms are outweighed by the all of the utility of the other person's life. But if you believe in bodily rights, uh, and, and those are more important than consequentialism, you have more of a, maybe a Kantian view, deontological view, then I might say, no, she doesn't have uh, an obligation. I think you could say she's a morally reprehensible person. You could, you could dislike her strongly, but I think I might say that she doesn't have to uh, care for that infant, because that infant is is not a person. How am I doing for time? Do I have time for one more? You have 10 seconds, so probably not, I'm afraid. Oh, nope. Okay. Um, so Fair enough. 10 seconds started. 
right? Oh, now they're over. <laughs> they, were, they started, they started nine seconds ago. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, Trent, it's over to you. As soon as you're ready, again, I will hit start the timer. Um, your turn to ask some questions. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, let me... Uh, let me go through some of your things. Let's talk about the um, let's talk about the the future like ours argument uh, because I raised what's a, a common objection to the argument. I'm curious to hear your your reply. Um, d- does it entail that uh, like let's take sperm and egg for example that like they would have a future like ours and so contraception would would even people who are against contraception usually wouldn't say it's as wrong as murder. Uh, so would you say that you're the future like ours argument means like do sperm and egg have it? And if they don't, if they don't have a future like ours, what, why would an embryo or fetus have one uh, help me understand that? Um, so I don't think so. Um, because I, but the reason that I don't think so has to deal with kind of the, uh, some deep metaphysics of the nature of objects. Okay. And so this idea that there was a sperm from, uh, my father and, um, an egg from my mother's ovum, um, then came together to create a new individual, a new individual that was neither a part of my mom nor a part of my dad it is its own unique individual. And so until that moment happened, it, but obviously, so uh, it would take a while to kind of lay out the framework for the metaphysics of this view, but it would basically say that, uh, no, like, look at the moment of conception, um, a new individual came into existence and this individual is exist is separate from both my mother and my father. Whereas the egg could be considered part of my mother and the sperm can be considered part of my father. And so that a new individual, a new object came into existence at the moment of conception and that I am identical to that. We Again, we can call that fee and that mm-hmm. I am identical to that fee. And that's when my right to life began. Well, I guess then my, my question is, are you identical to fee the, the previously existing embryo or, or fetus or do you want to say, so we don't want to say numerically identical because um, that's much too strong of a claim. Well, sure, you have because um, you have properties that fee never had. You're, you're doing it exactly. Yeah, so we, we wouldn't be numerically identical, but we would be one in the same entity, just at different stages of life. Okay, so it's like how you are the same person who started this debate, even though you have slightly a few yes. more properties. Yes. So this this assumes. Um, without trying to get too deep into philosophical philosophical jargon is the non-reductionist view of identity. So that what makes the same thing, same entity through time is a further fact uh, about this thing's continuity. Um, yeah, and this would be contrast to a reductionist view of identity, but I'm trying not to get too deep in that. Well, <laughs> I get it. And I might've opened that can of worms with some of my thought experiments. Cause I think the crux of our disagreement, help me see if I'm wrong is, is I think that, uh, what we are is we are a collection of mental states and you seem to be saying what we are is, is an organism. Is that the difference between us? 
Yeah, so we would be a human organism. We would be a living human organism, or we could say we are a living human individual. And so that we are in that we are separate. In, so I am not the same organism as my father. I am not the same organism as my mother. Just I'm not the same individual as my father. I'm not the same individual, nor am I a part of them. Um, I might be made of parts of them, but, but if I'm a distinct individual organism. But if we are organisms, if that's what we are, what, what do you do with my thought, ex my thought experiment where I could either destroy your body and your mind or just destroy your mind? Um, it seems like under my view, a lot of people would treat that. Do you, I mean, what would you I see those as being pretty equivalent in the harm that is caused and the person is gone. You, so maybe you, maybe you don't agree. No, but so what's what's wrong with the reply? here the obvious reply here and that in just both cases we use um the future like ours criteria and both of them like whether you destroy my mind or my body um is irrelevant given the future like ours criteria because in both cases um i'm deprived of a valuable future I see. So um, you, oh, so you're saying there could be acts besides killing that deprive someone of a future like ours? Yes. So I'm not saying that a future of value is a necessary condition for a killing to be wrongful. It's only a sufficient condition for the wrongness of an act. So there, other acts might be wrong for other reasons. Um, I think it would be much too strong a claim. Um, I don't even think Don Marquise would make that strong of a claim that he was giving necessary conditions for the wrongness of killing so you you would especially in my second example like so do you you would just reject the view of i would rather have my mind uploaded to a computer than to have my body and mind destroyed or do you think that's not possible or oh no so well yeah if if that's the question now now you have opened the bucket of worms as far as the metaphysics of identity mm -hmm. um because you we we would ask um, is it the same as surviving death? Is that the same as ordinary survival or does some, or does uploading you to a, to a mind, you know, uploading your mind to a computer? Is that just another way of dying? It's not like a regular way of dying, but is it, is it really a way of dying? And someone who wakes up on the other side of that computer wakes up as a different person. Um, and I don't know. I think that's a super interesting, uh, well, I do in a different context, um, about questions of personal identity. However, I'm in a devil's advocate debate and I can't use those resources. <laughs> but, but your position, so, but it seemed like your position, it's hard. I'm trying, you're like saying, well, it's not rooted in metaphysics and personal identity, but then it starts to kind of be because, well, it's a particular kind of object. Well, no, no, I'm just saying that I don't want to get into the, because of time yeah, um, no, constraints, I, I don't want to unpack, like, I definitely think that the metaphysics of identity is super important to the question of abortion. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to present it in a way that's uh, accessible yeah, and digestible. Yeah, because maybe we're going at it in two different ways. You're looking at it as what makes killing wrong, and I'm trying to answer the question. That I think what makes killing wrong is the kind of thing killed. I guess we're both saying that. You're focusing it on this this property of a, of a future like ours. Well, what do you think, though, of... Um, like that there's a difference between, you know, I desire uh, my future and like my fetal self that had no sense of, of, of a connection. Do you think there's a, a relevant difference between psychologically being connected to the future like ours or not? Um, so, yes, I think that 
um, regardless of my view um, on the question of abortion, I would have to admit as much, especially um, even the value of something like desire fulfillment. Um, I think you would have to say that something that has a desire, um, depriving something of something that desired something and desire, depriving something of something that didn't desire it. I'm thinking of, you know, if I desired water and you gave me water and a plant desired water or, you know, plants don't really desire water, but they need, but you deprived a plant, um, of water. You've not done something wrong in the same way that you've done something wrong to me by depriving me of water because I wanted water or water is crucial for life, but you know, an alcoholic beverage, um, something that I don't need, but you, because, um, you've thwarted my desire fulfillment in there, you've wronged me in a way that a plant can't be wronged. Right. But I guess that's like my view. I, I treat the fetus like a, like a plant basically that it's like, you know, well, you know, it, it, it can't desire these things, um, like I can. And I, I think that is really the crux of what, of what makes it wrong because person. I think it's a, I think that's a super great point. Um, because this ties us back into this idea of personal, of identity mm-hmm. and the non-reductionist view and the reductionist view. So the reductionist view, um, is going to see, um, you know, the difference between a fetus and or an adult is the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. Um, whereas if you accept my, Prus's argument, and you see this non-reductive fact that there's this idea, you know, that it's, it's an all or nothing. I'm alive or dead, and I or I have a right or I don't have to write. You're going to lean more into the. You're going to think that, you know, abortion is morally wrong. Where if you, if you have the acorn oak tree view, the reductionist view of personality, you're going to lean more to the pro, pro choice side because you're going to say, look, these don't sacrifice something morally relevant. And so I think that's this is a great point that questions in the metaphysics of identity can help I, I decide guess, the question of abortion. Well, I guess another question I have is, so if you're saying, well, I'm identical, uh, essentially, not numerically, but I, I was a fetus, I was an embryo, and so I have a right to life now, and I had a right to life then. Like, are, it seems to me like, are there two kinds of rights? Because it's like, like, I have a right to vote now, but I didn't have a right to vote then. You know, so, like... Well, are, sure. Are there, are there, so there's, are, there's legal rights and there's moral rights. So, you know... I have a moral right for my, you know, wife to be faithful to me in our, in our marriage. However, I don't have that as a legal right. I can't, there isn't, um, I can't, you know, have the state punish my wife if she is unfaithful. Mm-hmm. So that would be the, the distinction between a moral right and a legal right. Okay. So you think though that our moral rights go back? Um, yeah. Most of my arguments really focused on the moral aspect of the morality of um, abortion and really kind of assuming that the question of abortion turns on the morality of it. How, Sam, how are we on uh, on time? That's time, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. So, fantastic. Okay, so we're going to be moving into our sort of quick fire ten question round, where each of you gets a minute to respond. Um, so I'll be trying to I'll be trying to time it, but basically, obviously, you have a minute. Try and do your best within a minute, essentially. Um, so just to remind everybody, I've got Daniel in the call with me. He's going to be putting the questions onto the screen. I've also got Roger, who's in the chat. He's been curating the questions. Uh, we had quite a few beforehand as well. So depending on how the chat's been going and the questions, you might see a few from Roger, but that's because they've all been kind of curated from other areas as well. So okay, to start with Daniel, if you're happy to share the first question, will you support when belief dies? 
Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything we do. There are three ways you can support When Belief Dies. Firstly, would you rate When Belief Dies in Apple Podcasts and over on Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog, podcast and YouTube channel. All the links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. Okay, can either debater claim any authority on this issue as people who presumably identify as male? So we're going to start with Ben and then we're going to go to Roger. So Ben, you've got a minute. Um, I am going to be um, modest in my, I'm not going to claim to be an authority um, in any way on this question, regardless of what side I fall on it. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a philosopher, um, specifically a moral philosopher. So I, the best I can really hope to do is maybe clarify some concepts, claims, or arguments on either side of the debate to help people come to a better understanding of the question and to hopefully be able to use tools better in their searches for truth. Um, so I would, I would take a very um, distant um, approach as a philosopher to this question, and I would think that it would be disrespectful or inappropriate for me to be some sort of figurehead or um, authority figure on this sort of question because uh, I, I, I don't I, it, this question only affects me indirectly and what matters to me is the philosophy so I would focus on that got you okay fantastic Trent over to you uh, yeah and what I would say is that I mean I'm not an authority of you know there's only what a handful of authorities on anything in the world but I think I am competent to speak on this issue because it is morally important. Uh, I, I would say that I'm competent to speak on the morality of uh, harms related to race, even though I might not be a victim of racism. Uh, I can be, you know, you can speak to issues because you you have a rational mind because you're a person. And in fact, the position I'm defending here, it's only indirectly related to abortion because it would also entail things like, well, could we, you know, destroy embryos that we create in a laboratory? and grow in an artificial womb. You could have a group of men who make an embryo in a laboratory. It's a human embryo that's developing the in an artificial womb. That would be the exact same, almost the exact same, moral, central moral issues related to abortion we have been discussing would rise there as well. And we could continue the argument without making references to gender or sex or, or, or things like that. So the question of abortion, I believe, is subordinate to the question of personhood. And that is something that any person should certainly have an interest in discussing. Thank you, D Daniel. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, and a related qu question. To what extent can this debate be characterized as a debate about who gets to control the female body? So this time we're going to start with Trent. Well, I would say that once again, this is a debate about who is a person 
and what can we do with those those persons uh and the fact of the matter is yes human embryos and fetuses uh the vast majority of them do reside in the bodies of women some of them do not some are in ivf uh facilities for example some are in neonatal care units in hospitals they're fetuses who have been born but they're very very premature and require medical care to um to sustain them so anytime we talk about a debate about what is a person and how can you how do you treat that person that's indirectly going to say if x is a person then other persons cannot harm x so when we talk about something being a person and it not uh, it being wrong to harm that person well then naturally as persons are not allowed to harm other persons without just cause you know you can't kill innocent people uh, so I think these are very loaded questions to talk about control over female bodies. Uh, I do think that's important. I think sometimes people overlook it and we, we do we do need to confront it. But at the same time, the, the central issue is whether um, a fetus is a person like you or I are. Uh, okay. And if they are, then we have to confront that accordingly. Brilliant. Ben, over to you. Yeah, so I would insist that um, this is a loaded question, and so that it assumes that we have come here with an assumption or some way of intending to characterize um, the control of women's bodies. And so I won't put that to rest. That's not neither of us have assumed that. Regardless, like I'm pro-choice, arguing a pro-life case. Trent is pro-life, arguing pro-choice. Neither of us in either of those positions are assuming that we that someone is in control of women's bodies. We both assu assume that morality is autonomous, that this is something that's self-governed, and that this is an, an aspect of moral philosophy, um, and that we can that we can we can ask these questions and do moral philosophy. And it's not about who gets to control whose bodies. That's I think that that that's asking a loaded question that frames the question in a way that we don't want to frame it. Right. That's helpful. Thank you. Okay. Question three from Chris. What books do you recommend that best represent and defend each position? So Ben, we're going to start with you again, please. Um, so if I'm talking about the pro-choice position, I think that David Boonin's A Defense of Abortion is very good, as um, well as Nathan Nubis's uh, Thinking Critically About Abortion. I wish that I had more books to recommend for the pro-life side, because I will admit that most of my pro-life literature comes from articles and papers more so than actual books. And so that's kind of a shortcoming on my part, but I would certainly recommend papers, but the uh, Don Marquise's uh, future value uh, paper is obviously a must read for this debate. I would recommend Alexander Pruce's I was once a fetus. Um, and I would also recommend De Silvestro's art, um, article on higher order capacities. I had to cut that argument because of time constraints for this debate, but it's another, I think that's another really great article. Um, and those are the ones that as I've read through what literature I have, I was most struck by. I found them to be the most, I was like, okay, this is, these are really challenging arguments really worth um, Looking at. taking okay. seriously. 
That's helpful. And Trent, you've had time to look at your bookshelf. Over to you. <laughs> yes, I was looking around. I have a few nearby here. Uh, I agree with um, Ben, actually. Uh, so on the pro-choice position, uh, this book, A Defense of Abortion by David Boonin, almost 20 years old, actually. D uh, Professor Boonin has written a follow-up book called Beyond Roe. So he defends, he has two arguments in here. One that argues the fetus is not a person. The other, abortion is still moral, even if the fetus is a person. His latest book, Beyond Roe, takes part two of this book and expands it and defends abortion, even if the fetus is a person. A um, few other books that might be related to that. And I agree with Ben. There's other good articles, good people on, uh, uh, sorry, I, well, um, people who have skillfully defended the pro-choice view, uh, Jeff McMahon, Nathan Nobis, uh, Ronald Dworkin's book, Life's Dominion is good. On the pro-life position, uh, the references Ben gave are great. Uh, I have a few books here. Uh, Frank Beckwith's book, Defending Life, is a very good one. Pat Lee's Unborn Human Life. And then I uh, then two more, Embryo by Robert George and Christopher Tollefson. Good book, especially focusing on the question of personhood of embryos. Probably one of the best, though, I would recommend would be by Chris, Dr. Christopher Kayser, philosopher. It's called The Ethics of Abortion, Women's Rights, Human Life, and the Question of Justice. Chris Kayser. And it's actually endorsed on the back by Boonin, saying this is one of the best book-length defenses of the claim abortion is morally impermissible. Philosophy blurbs are always so are always so flourishing. This is a good book on that this is impermissible. Um, so yeah, Ethics of Abortion by Kazor. Amazing. Thank you both for that. Okay, question four. Does the whole debate boil down to whether there really is a difference between fertilized and unfertilized embryos? Trent, we're going to be starting with you this time, please. Uh, I think it boils down to that for Ben's position. Um, I, I think that, it, you know, if, if we're talking about, because that was one of my objections to the, the future like ours argument, that it kind of, it becomes counterintuitive if we say that a, a sperm or egg has a future like ours and, and others um, do not. Uh, I would, so for that, it would also come down for a lot of pro-life positions that argue that, he, like Ben's position, human organisms are persons. If you don't believe there's a moral difference or even a biological difference between, um, well, essentially the term unfertilized embryo, I, I don't even know what that means, right? An embryo is what comes into existence when sperm and egg come together. It's not like you can have an embryo that floats out there that is not fertilized. You have an ova, you can have an egg that will then be fertilized by a sperm. So the question is, is there a difference between ova and an embryo? And I would say biologically, absolutely there is. But then you're right, the moral difference that will that will hinge and we have to figure out what factors make it right or wrong. Okay, Ben, over to you. Well, uh, Trent already kind of stole my comment because I was going to say that there's there is no such thing as an unfertilized embryo. That's just a contradiction in terms. Um, so what I think he means to say is that does the question of uh, the abortion question turn on the metaphysical identity claims um, about when um conception the 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 moment of conception and i don't think it does however i do think that these are considerations that can help us understand it better that they do can like depending on what our views are about the metaphysics of identity will move us one way or the other on the abortion question. I think that the, and I've argued this elsewhere, that the question of abortion turns on the moral status of the fetus. That, that, what, that if, if it is 
morally wrong to um, kill a fetus or not morally wrong to kill a fetus, that's what's going to decisively answer the question of abortion. That's the feature. So I think it's essentially a moral issue in applied ethics. Okay, that's helpful. Right, the fifth question. So from Phylon, Q for Ben, unless it comes up. Doesn't the possibility of parthenogenesis, forgive me if I got that wrong, i.e. unfertilized egg development, contradict your flow and identity arguments? So we're going to be starting with Ben, but then obviously we're going to be getting trends if you're this as well. So Ben, for you to start. Um. So I don't, I'll just be honest and say that I don't know, because I don't actually know what it would contradict, because even if we're talking about um, an unfertilized egg development, um, first off, does that have a future um, like ours, a future of value? Um, and then there's a question of, am I identical? Um, am I one in the same entity with this unfertilized egg? Or is someone um, one in the same enti- entity as this unfertilized egg development? And I don't have enough information from the question to make that determination. So I don't know if there's enough there to drive some sort of contradiction. I'm not entirely clear what the objection might be here. Trent, perhaps you might well, know I guess the idea here is like, if there is like an egg that could develop into a fully grown human being, would it have a ball by itself or with electricity? I'm not familiar. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, there's not enough. In, in the thought experiment isn't filled in enough. Yeah, I guess my thought on this is it it might just bring up, though, what will be difficult on your view is like identifying what beings have a future like ours and what don't. I think my view about what beings are persons is a lot easier. We we just ask them and they say they're persons. And so that is um, that's a lot simpler. It gets harder when you have. It's cheating. Well, you know, you get get a little harder with incapacitated (laughs) persons, but you brought that up. But in general, you can just ask them. Okay, let me start out there. Um, Okay, great. Over to question six. So your style of argument seems different different in the style of argument related to the conclusion you draw on this issue. Do certain methodological approaches inevitably lead to different conclusions? We're going to be starting with Trent for this one, please. Um, I don't think think so um i think that one could take deductive arguments or uh going from premises to a conclusion or abductive which would say uh we have all this data set and what best explains the data set uh i would say in general i i've seen most pro-life people tend to make deductive arguments uh ben's making an abductive one um and i think they reach the same conclusion i i, I just think that certain it may be the case that certain people who make certain arguments have preferences for certain things based on their what kind of philosophy they studied, what philosophers they've read or, you know, studied under. Uh, so I don't know if there's a direct connection between the kinds of arguments you prefer and the conclusions. Uh, I would say that these are these are tools. It'd be like saying, you know, do does someone who use manual tools are more likely to make certain kinds of objects than people with power tools. A lot of times they make the same things, but you'll notice fine differences between them. I don't know if that analogy helps. I think that analogy analogy is super useful. Um, So again, I'm not entirely clear. So 
the first sentence seems like a statement, but it's got a question mark. Um, so when he says your style of argument seems different in the style of argument related to the conclusions you draw on this issue, I'm not entirely sure what that means. Um, so I'll give you what I think it means. I think it does the style in philosophy is largely drawn between the analytic and the continental tradition. Um, now, will these traditions inevitably give rise to different conclusions? No, I think they will often agree. And I think that's a good thing when different methodologies converge on the same answer. Um, the methodology or the tradition I was working in for this is one in analytic philosophy. So I was trying to be as clear um, in the concepts and claims that I made, as well as rigorous in the arguments that I gave. That's helpful. Thank you. Okay, next question. Given the reality that most folks don't read philosophy books, what is a way to sway the culture at large to one position or the other? We can be starting with you again, Ben, please. Um, democracy. So I think that out of the end of the you know, it's, it's not that these arguments aren't important. It's not that discussing them and studying them is not important. To the end of the day, that what's really going to change society is going out and voting, to informing yourself on these issues and showing up. Um, really, that's the way that it's going to sweat. Now, philosophy influences culture in other ways, too. Um, but I, for, for me, what I would want to encourage people to do is to get as good of an understanding as they can of this big, very big question, um, come to their own conclusions, and to show up to vote. Yeah, what I would say is talking about the issue, having dialogue, what we're doing here, having dialogue, having debate. Um, in this debate, I'm taking on the pro-choice persona, so I will continue it, to say that I am, you know, I would be very um, frustrated with other pro-choice individuals who uh, refuse to do debates, refuse to do dialogues. There, uh, there are many pro-choice individuals who will say that this issue is just not up for debate. That's not how you handle a moral issue that divides large numbers of people. You should be able to bring your arguments to the table and address it with one another. Uh, and that's more what we need to do. So even in, even though we read philosophy books, we can talk with each other and see what we, we think about the issues. Amazing. Okay. Can you have an abortion, sorry, can you have an anti-abortion law that doesn't control women's bodies? So Trent, we're going to be starting with you for this one. Well, I, I guess what I might, and once again, this is the, the loaded term here. Like I, I don't, like I think some people would argue for abortion based on a, a brute, literally a brute fact or right by power that just, well, doesn't matter if this is a person, women can do what they want with their bodies. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Uh, if, I, if I invite a person into my home, let's say a toddler, I, I couldn't then just kill him or throw him out in a snowstorm because I don't want to care for him anymore. Persons have obligations to one another. Um, this idea and the fact that some persons live in the bodies of other persons, that that doesn't change that. Uh, so could you have an anti-abortion law that doesn't? Well, here's the thing. That'd be like saying, can you have a law that doesn't control bodies? Only if it's a law that, ha that, has, that has only something to do with like a thought crime, like don't think this, which of course you can't enforce. So all laws 
control our bodies. They say we can't uh, type fraudulent things. Uh, we, you know, we can't, uh, my fists can't go into somebody's face. If you're going to have a law against violence committed bodily violence, the laws are going to control people's bodies. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. The question is, is the control justified? And my position is it, it wouldn't be if the fetus is not a person. Real. Ben, over to you. Yeah, so I would, again, say that this kind of has some loaded language in it. So um, the if there is an anti-abortion law, that, so that law is not controlling women's bodies any more than seatbelt laws are controlling women's bodies. What's going on there is that the state, through legislation, which is justified through something like a just social contract, restricts the choices that people can make. It's not an, again, it's not an objection to seatbelt laws to say, well, well, who's, who's controlling my body? Who has the right here to control my body? Um, that's not the case at all. What, what's been happening is that we have the freedom to make choices, but if we make certain choices, the state is going to respond in certain ways to deter people from making those choices. Your freedom is being restricted. Your body is not being controlled. You still have autonomy and you still have freedom. And so I think framing questions in this way is just unhelpful. It's kind of like, because it's got so much ambiguity and it's like, well, abortion's just murdering innocent babies. That's not helpful because it's not clear, you know, murder is a thick concept. Babies is an ambiguous term. Intentionality, you know, uh, innocent implies some sort of blameworthiness. Mm. Like these are just, the concepts are too ambiguous for them to be useful in such a heated discussion. Okay. That's really helpful. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to do one more question, I think. So how is language related to the debate on abortion? Emotive pro-life versus objective pro-choice language. Ben, we're going to start with you, please. <clears throat> so I reject the characterization that pro-life is emotive and pro-choice uses objective language. I uh, So um, the case that I gave tonight would be an objectivist case. It would say that um, when, when it would say that you should, you have a pro-tonto moral reason not to kill someone with a right to life. That's not an emotive statement. That is a statement that is meant to be objectively true in the sense that the wrong-making property of some acts is that you kill an individual with a future like ours. So you can cast a pro-life term in objectivist terms or emotivist terms, just like you can cast a pro-choice position in emotivist or objectivist terms. I don't think one necessarily implies that, you know, pro, pro-life doesn't imply motivism. Pro-choice doesn't apply object, objectivism. They can, you can, you can cast either case in either terms. Yeah. Uh, I would say that both of those terms are just the nicest terms you can use. And I think everybody should get to use the terms they want to use. Uh, so either they're both emotive or they're both objective. It's not one or the other. Both of them are sufficiently vague enough. I would be fine with pro-legal abortion and anti-legal abortion or pro-abortion and anti-abortion. Uh, I'll also say that I think some pro-choice advocates are inconsistent here that they'll say pro-life advocates 
rely on emotions. They'll describe abortion. They'll show graphic abortion images and that they're the objective ones. But then they turn around and they'll say, well, abortion is justified in the case of a 12-year-old girl who has been raped by her father and is going to, you know, have a, you know, is going to die in pregnancy. And so, so I feel like these same individuals will deride pro-lifers for emotive things, but then they will craft these uh, hypothetical cases to defend abortion that are just as, if not more emotional. Uh, so I would say just, you know, it's like dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Let's look at the, the empirical facts, the moral facts, and, and reach a, a solid conclusion. Brill, thank you for that, Trent. Okay, so that's the end of our kind of quick question fire round. So essentially, just for the the, the viewers live at the moment and for the listeners later on, um, essentially we've got a closing statements are about to come up, um, and then we're going to have a ten minute debrief where both Trent and Ben kind of switch back to their sort of standard, usual everyday positions, and then we're going to have a final sort of question and answer round where we're going to spend a little bit more time from each of them um, on on the questions. We've got five more questions really to line up. So I just kind of want to make sure our, our live viewers know that and have a real think about a good question that you could ask uh, both Trent and Ben to get the best from them because this is a really rare opportunity to ask these two incredible people their views on stuff so have a think and put the best question you can into into the chat for us okay so we're going to move to closing statements then we're going to start with you if that's okay so let me know when you're ready you've got five minutes we'll go from there I'm ready to go uh, let me start my closing by again thanking Sam and the When Belief Dies team for putting together this debate. And thank you, Trent, for again agreeing to have another great discussion with me. I'll be brief and quick, quickly recap my case. First, I argued pro-life, or what I also called premise B, has a higher prior probability than its negation, or what I called pro-choice, because it is simpler. Second, I argued pro-life is simpler because it is both more modest and more coherent. Pro-life is more modest than pro-choice because it entails certain moral assumptions that pro-choice does not without making additional claims. Such a claim is that there is a pro-tanto reason not to kill either you or me. I also claim that pro-life is more coherent than pro-choice given certain moral and metaphysical assumptions. I argued for at least three such moral and metaphysical assumptions. The first was Don Marquise's first Future Like Ours argument, which claimed we have a pro-tanto reason against killing anyone with a future like ours. The second argument I gave was from Alexander Pruss. I argued I am one and the same entity as a prenatal human we call Fee. So Fee has all of the same essential properties that I do. I have a right to life essentially, so it follows I also had a right to life when I was a prenatal human. Since there is no morally relevant differences between me or any other human, it follows we have a pro-tanto reason not to kill any human. My final argument I called fail conservative. I argued a plausible epistemic principle given moral uncertainty. If there is a non-negligible chance all humans have a future like ours, then we should fail conservative and assume we have a pro-tanto reason not to kill nearly any human even a prenatal human. To do otherwise would be morally reckless. In similar way, it would be morally reckless to demolish a building without being certain it was cleared of personnel. I called this cumulative case probable pro-life, and I believe it might be a rebutting defeater for pro-choice. 
I want to use my final closing comments to draw our attention to some features of my pro-life case and how it differs from pro-life cases you might find in the wild. First, my entire case is secular. At no point do I refer to a religious tradition, theological claim, or divine authority. Additionally, none of my claims are in tension with feminist principles, naturalistic worldviews, or humanist ethics. Such considerations are insufficient to satisfactorily resolve the question of abortion on either side. The lesson I want people to walk away with is that the question of abortion is a difficult question of applied ethics, and it will require nothing less than for us to do moral philosophy, metaphysics, and epistemology if we want to really understand this question and be justified in our beliefs about it. The next thing I want to note is that my case is formulated within the tradition of analytic philosophy, so I lean heavily on the rigor of argument and the clarity of concepts as tools for discovering deeper truths. I did not flash gruesome photos of abortion procedures, nor did my rhetoric ever characterize abortion in graphic detail, nor did I use morally ambiguous concepts such as murdering innocent babies. I want to close with a remark about the nature of arguments and humility. It's important to remember that arguments are tools and not weapons. They are not meant to defeat political opponents, nor to boost our own egos. Because of the abstract nature of argument, they can be divorced from the very real phenomenology that women experience surrounding the question of abortion. Women are a marginalized in-group, and I'm not a woman. The best I can hope to do is help one or two people get more clear about the moral philosophy surrounding this question. It would be inappropriate for me to be a spokesman or figurehead for either side because the decision to induce an abortion only indirectly affects me, an unmarginalized member of an outgroup, while it directly affects women, a marginalized member of an in-group. With Roe v. Wade staring down the possibility of being overturned, and along with it, federal protection for a woman's right to induce an abortion, tense discussions are likely to ensue in the coming weeks. I want to take this opportunity to invite thoughtful people on both sides to commit themselves to understanding the arguments on both sides and recognizing our own limits so we communicate better with each other, respectively, substantively, and with humility. Thank you for your attention, and cheers. Amazing. Thank you very much, Ben. Trent, over to you. As soon as you're ready, let me know. I'll hit start. Sure. Go right ahead. <clears throat> well, I definitely want to thank Ben for taking part of this debate. And I think one thing you might find interesting, two things you'd find interesting. Number one, we're even talking about this at all in uh, precise, thoughtful terms. Many people don't do that. So I would echo Ben's call to say more people need to do that. This issue has not gone away. It will not go away. It is very important uh, because, uh, you know, based on my position, if the fetus is a person, then abortion is a tremendous evil that one ought to oppose. And it is not misogynistic. It is not bigoted to do that. Uh, it is the thing any sane, rational person ought to do. And that, as I said in my, throughout our exchanges, merely the right to control one's body or anything like that does not entail we can mistreat other persons, especially persons who 99% of the time in pregnancy, they are there through the voluntary actions of other persons. Being a person means you not only have rights, you also have duties. You have duties to non-persons, like not to be cruel to animals, and duties to other persons as well. So that means the question really hinges on what are human embryos and human fetuses? Are they persons or not? 
because that will really change the kind of duties that that we have towards them. And, and in my case, and I think it's interesting for you to see that Ben had made a case very different than other pro-lifers because he wants to put forward the strongest argument. Uh, and I've made a case that I think is very different than other pro-choicers because I don't care about the, the, the rhetoric here. I want to I want to have an argument that I that I believe at the end of the day is at the very least consistent uh, that when we look at persons, uh, if, if we just simply say, uh, well, fetuses are persons when they're viable or at 12 weeks or at five weeks or at birth when they've changed the location. This is just just arbitrary. It's not philosophically defensible. Instead, my position at time and time again has said, what is a person? We see persons all around us, and we can then make a judgment call, understanding persons have particular abilities, rational abilities, beings that do not have those abilities, uh, you, you know, different beings, even beings we're emotionally attached to, if they don't have those abilities, they are not persons. And so the way we treat them will be dramatically different, and that can justify the position of abortion. That doesn't mean, of course, it's not a hard decision for people who are involved in it, but it does change it once we answer that question. So that would be my encouragement for those who are watching this debate. Uh, read a book <laughs> or at least go on the internet and read something. I mean, the best books, you saw them right here. Boone, David Boone in Defense of Abortion, Chris Kazor, The Ethics of Abortion. Lots of great articles online that you can read. Alex Press's I Was a Fetus that Ben mentioned is a great one um, to start there. Jeff McMahon on the pro-choice side. Yeah, I would just encourage our listeners that uh, the issue of abortion is not about, uh, you know, does it benefit this person? Does it not benefit that person? It's not about these secondary issues. We have to answer the question, what is an embryo? What is a fetus? Is it a person? And I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and at least have a definition of a person that you can jibe with and see if it naturally entails or does not include embryos or fetuses and just be consistent and be thoughtful on these issues. Amazing. Thank you, Trent. That's fantastic. Okay. So we have 10 minutes now where essentially, and I'm kind of happy to do this either way. I can give you both five minutes and you can kind of come out, come out of character and begin to talk about sort of the, the why, why you argued in the way you did, what you learned in this conversation. Um, or I'm very happy for it just to be an open conversation. For I, I think it want. can be kind of lo low key and open. Now yeah, can, let's do open. Oh, I'm so take, glad we're on the same page with that. I can I take like, my, oh, let's not do time. Let's anymore. take my hat off. <laughs> 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 now it's fun. <laughs> All right, gents. Well, go for it. Ten minutes, essentially, if you guys have a back and forth and talk about, uh, yeah, why you argued in the way you did and what you learned from this conversation. Um, I'll go ahead. I'll kick us off. So I was admitted, admittedly a little surprised um, that you did not use arguments from Judith Jarvis Thompson. Uh, yeah. The bodily, like even if we can see that a fetus has a right to life that it doesn't necessarily have the right to use someone else's body. Was that a strategic, uh, choice? Cause I know fitting in a lot of arguments in 10 minutes is tough. <laughs> yeah. And, and I wanted to have a focused case and, and it is hard because I know, because it's interesting, you kind of had kind of multiple reinforcing arguments. Uh, and I picked more of what I thought was like kind of a, a stake, a, you know, a single shot to, to build up into, and there's, there's different merits to it. Uh, and it's hard. It's like, you know, what do we think are the strongest positions on the other side? Uh, and I wanted to be fair in this. Like, I'm not going to come here with just 
an easy dopey dopey pro-choice position that wouldn't be fun i picked a position that i think is very difficult to refute because of its consistency and i would call that the the singer Thule warren thesis which focuses on personhood and so i wanted to go with that argument and i thought it would also be interesting going with that argument to take their criticisms of the the thompson violinist argument um, because Thule actually in his book, it's around here somewhere, he basically says, well, yeah, you don't have rights to others, but if I, Thule basically says, if I'm responsible, like he used an example, if I'm responsible for destroying someone's food supply, then I could owe them compensation. So I think the jar, the Thompson argument is strongest in the least number of cases, like, like in non-voluntary pregnancies. But when you include the fact that you engage in an act that creates a person, I do think it's weakened a lot. Gotcha. So what do you, what in your opinion is the strongest argument on the pro-choice side and in the interest of being fair? Because I think that the Don Marquis, the future like ours, the flow argument is the strongest on the pro. What do you think is the, because there's multiple arguments on the pro-choice side. Oh, do you mind me? So we're pro-choice. I, I still would say that I think the strongest. We do pro-life too. We'll oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll do both. Well, the strongest, <laughs> like I said before, I think the strongest ones on the pro-choice side are the ones that have the fewest inconsistencies. Many of them, they begin to fall apart because they're ad hoc or arbitrary. I think that the 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 Thule Singer Warren argument of personhood has the fewest inconsistencies. So it's much harder to pin down. On the pro-life side, I do see, I believe the future like ours argument, it's good at reinforcing the general wrongness of, of many killings and abortion. I see it as supplementary, but not a main argument because there's a, there's many other cases it wouldn't fall under. Uh, but I think in our, as our discussion kind of showed, I do think what would be called um, like essential property views or identity arguments. This Beckwith calls this the substance view of, of the person, human person. I think those are the strongest because when we start talking about future like ours, you end up getting to metaphysical questions of identity. Like I think Marquis tries to do future like ours to get around. Let's not talk about persons. Let's not talk about metaphysical identity, but you end up getting there anyways, when you try to figure out what kind of beings have a future like ours and stuff like that. So I do think the the, like I call it the Kazor Beckwith Lee thesis is probably the strongest that I, that I would think though. Marquis is very strong in its own right. And so I would say for the pro-choice side, I would uh, agree that the, uh, Thule, Singer, Boring kind of thesis of challenging the idea of a fetus being a person and really the metaphysics of what is a person and the notion of personal identity that I, that I emphasized a lot. So I think that the moral status of the fetus um, is it super important? And I think that the metaphysics of identity is super important. And so I think those, the strongest arguments on the pro-choice side come from somehow denying that a fetus is a person or denying that I was once a fetus. So do you, you don't think the bodily autonomy argument is as strong? Um, I do, uh, don't get me wrong, but so I think that the question, the questions surrounding personhood are ones that I'm more familiar with. So that might be why I lean to them, but I also find them very powerful. Um, I also don't get me wrong. I find Judith Jar Jarvis Thompson's, um, arguments persuasive as well. Um, but in a different kind. So it, for me, 
Um, once we're in Judith Jarvis Thompson's arguments, we've conceded that a fetus is a person with a right to life. Um, it's another, it's the next step in the conversation. Say, okay, well, even if you concede this, right. um, you know, these other things seem to fall. But then I think you just get into a, a war of um, competing intuitions. Like a lot of the questions I asked you were, you know, thought experiments that mirror Judith Jarvis Thompson, but from the pro-life camp. And so then it becomes a, a war of moral intuitions and that becomes oh, pretty tough. And, the, and then the it gets weeds. a little, well, what gets hard with these, which I found interest, I found interesting in my study is like about personhood. We'll try to come up with these thought experiments about personhood and like, um, and toolies on, you know, a cat with a serum and, uh, yeah. I think it, it can become very difficult. My my favorite by by far <laughs> is uh, uh, in there's a 2008 paper, impermissibility of abortion, uh, 2008 by Nicole Hausen or Ulrich Kriegel, I think. Um, let me see if I can find it here. But because they, they talk about like oh uh, passive and active potentiality. Oh, I know Kayser quotes it in here, and Hassoun and Kriegel, 2008. So they, they give this thought experiment. I don't know. Suppose many years from now, a space elevator is installed between Earth and Mars and an oyster finds its way to the elevator. At this point, the normal course of events should lead to the oyster becoming conscious in the absence of intervention. The oyster on the elevator is potentially conscious in the sense fetuses and neonates or infants are. And it's so to speak in route to consciousness. Yet it still seems intuitively permissible to kill the oyster. <laughs> to which Kazor, I love Kazor's reply. It is difficult to take such a preposterous example seriously rather than laugh and say, come on, do you really think that killing a newborn baby is like killing an oyster that could become conscious by taking a space elevator to Mars? So you're right. We like competing intuitions. We always have to be careful, like to pick examples. Once it gets too bizarre, it's like they're not even workable anymore. The, 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 the dissimilarities in the analogy become so extreme and exaggerated that it becomes difficult to isolate really the moral intuitions and be clear. Mm -hmm. uh, everything just kind of seems to be jumbled up and it's this, you know, web of intuitions that you didn't have to go and parse out. Yeah. Well, I guess, um, I didn't know Sam, if you had any other questions for us to like, to, to learn or people had questions to learn more, like, what, yeah, um, I think there was like something like five questions to be rapidly sorry. thrown at us or something. Oh, that was for when we were in character, I think. No, no, oh, you're that, right. that was for, no, no, for this. Um, so we can start that now if you want. That's oh, yeah, sure. Fine. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, sweet. All right, let's go for it. So the first question is, um, and we're going to be starting with Ben, just so you're, just so you're aware, Ben. Um, so is the definition of person or human an arbitrary definition that can just be changed to justify your position? I don't think so. So first off, I think person is a moral descriptor and I think human is a biological descriptor. So they're, they're terms that come from two different domains, but they can both be relevant to this discussion. And so one of my aims for this discussion was to avoid the concept or category of person to use my entire argument to so that nothing turns on the question. You, we can assume it is a person or you can assume it's not a person. And so you can call it an individual, you can call it an organism, you can call it a human, you can call it a person. It should not matter at that point. So if we're saying, well, what if we just have an arbitrary de definition? 
arbitrary de definitions don't really get us anywhere. I'm saying that whatever that individual is had a right to life. And so that there shouldn't be any shenanigans where um, I have defined a right to life into existence. I, I want to avoid that move as best as, as much as possible. Yeah. I thought that was really neat in, in Ben's case, because a lot of pro-lifers will just use these terms and they'll go into metaphysics and persons uh, though I think, and I find this a lot when I argue the position, especially when I'm engaging regular people, I sometimes just make an inference to the best explanation case to say, well, I'll just say, look, you and I, we know you and I are persons. We know that infants are persons. We know that rats are not persons. And then I'll just say, let's just start with these facts we both all seem to agree on what view is best going to explain all of these facts. Uh, so sometimes that might be like a, a best at explanatory powers kind of explanation uh, to, or to, to go at this. Um, so that's why I think that if you look at it in that way, it become, and I think that's why it's so powerful. Like you had people like Peter Singer who say like Singer says, look, there's really no morally relevant difference between a fetus shortly before birth and an infant shortly after. And he's, oh, he says pro-lifers are right about one thing. There's no difference between a fetus, paraphrasing Singer, no difference between a fetus before and after birth. Where pro-lifers are wrong, Singer roughly says, is they believe we ought to treat the fetus like an infant, whereas I say we ought to treat the infant like a fetus. So yeah, you can make arbitrary definitions. And I think it is arbitrary if you make a dividing line like birth or viability. Uh, but you can also start at the ground floor and just say, well, a person is just someone with the immediate capacity for personal actions, though. Um, and I might explain this more in a follow up to this debate. I don't believe that is a sufficient definition. I think Ben actually made a good little rejoinder in there when he said fetuses and embryos are persons because being a person is having the capacity to act in personal ways, even if it's not immediate. But that gets mm -hmm. us further down the line. No, I appreciate that. Okay, bro, let's go to question number two. So, super chat. Thank you, Flying. Appreciate it. Um, Trent, can you go into more detail about giving a serum to a cat to give it rational abilities? How would you, as a pro-lifer, respond to it? Yeah, well, I would say here that these kinds of objections about what is and isn't a person, sometimes, like Thule and others will bring this exa these examples up, to try to say that um, species membership uh, is not morally relevant, or, or, or I should say, sorry, membership of a kind is not morally relevant. Uh, and I think it is. Uh, things like species membership, for us to make moral determinations, I think both Ben and I would agree we have to focus on what, what will allow an individual or an entity to flourish. And in order to judge whether an entity is flourishing or not, um, uh, we have to know what its capacities are. So, for example, if I have a drug that can allow a cat to read, but I don't give the cat um, that drug, the cat is still flourishing like every other cat. But if I have a child and uh, I have a, a child who's illiterate and I could give it a serum to help it to read, I would say that I'm actually harming that child because the nature of a human being, it's ordered towards that certain rational end. And so it would be wrong to withhold in that case based on its particular end that's justified versus um, like a cat, for example. 
so I, so I would say like in, in, in those different kinds of cases, there is a total difference between, um, between saying, oh, well, uh, if I don't give the cat the serum, no rational being exists. And if I abort the fetus, no rational being exists. One is preventing a substantial change from occurring. And I would say in general, that's not wrong. That's fine. Uh, the other is actively interrupting the development of a person who does exist now. And that would be morally wrong. And they're not on par. The best I could sift that up. That's great. Ben, any thoughts, reflections on this? Um, so my inner Kantian uh, would want to say that if we were able to develop a serum um, that gave a cat rational abilities, then that cat would be more, it would be morally relevant in a way that it wasn't um, before. It might very well be a moral agent instead of just merely a moral patient. Um, and I would think that uh, there could be wrong acts uh, that involve this cat that wouldn't be wrong if this cat hadn't taken that serum. Um, I don't know if that's a challenge to my pro-choice view or not, um, but that's kind of how I'd cash it out. And I would say in general, this sounds like a horrible idea. You yeah. want to make cats smarter. They already yeah. think they're smarter than us. I've, I have five cats, so I'm going to have to agree with Trent on this. Like, I don't think I would want to make them smarter. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's dedication to the, to the feline cause. Um, oh, okay, yes. Cool. <laughs> Next question. Can persons have conflicting rights? Ben, we'll start with you for this one. Absolutely. So um, one of my conclusions for my pro-life case was that we had pro-tonto reasons not to kill certain people. And so a pro-tonto reason is a reason, is a real reason. It's a reason that we have, but it can be overridden by another reason that might be weightier. So we have what I'm call what I would call pro tanto obligations. So they're obligations that we have to one another, but those obligations can come into conflict with each other and that we should act on the, the weightier reason. So to give an example, um, I might make a promise um, to have um, lunch with my mother um, but then I get a call from my wife who says, I've been in a car wreck and I need you to you know, come help me right now. I might break my promise to my mother to eat her lunch. I might have a duty to you know, ha have lunch with my mother like I promised her, but I also have this duty to take care of my wife, especially if she's injured, in, in, you know, especially in a severe way. My duty to my wife is going to be greater than the duty I had to my mother. Certainly these rights have come into conflict, and so you would do the one that you have the most pro tanto reason to do, pro tanto being the Latin for to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and I would agree that people's rights uh, can come into conflict in some, in for the same reasons. Uh, so, like a few examples, uh, like the right to life and the right to private property could come into conflict. Like in Catholic teaching, the right to private property is not absolute. So there's a thing called the universal destination of goods. So, like in general, I couldn't go to a store and steal something just because I want it. I would violate the merchant's right to private property. But if there was a hurricane and, you know, or a disaster and I got people who need medical care immediately and the store is closed and I can't access it, the, uh, even Aquinas says this, that I that the right to life in this case would override the right to the right to private property. 
Um, so some people might say, well, the right to control one's body, how does that relate then to the right to life? But, and so that's where I would follow people like Marianne Warren and others, um, who would say, well, no, the right to life, uh, and the right to life certainly would outweigh the right to control one's body. Now, what Boone and others and Thompson would say is that the right to life does not entail a right to be kept alive. Uh, and that that's where the conflict is. But I truly believe that if we grant the fetus as a person, um, I think that I, my follow up question is if the fetus is a person, what does it have a right to as a person? What, what does the fetus have a right to do now that it is a person? If it would not, if it was not a person, like, what does that mean? And if it doesn't, and if the, you can't say, well, it has a right to X, if you can't say now the fetus is a person, so it gets to do X. If it has a right to nothing, I think we're calling it a person and name only. That's why I'm skeptical of these bodily autonomy arguments. I think that sometimes they grant the fetus is a person in name only, but then don't recognize it as persons. Beckwith summarizes this well in uh, his book, Defending Life, saying that persons are not islands amongst each other. Our obligations are not derived in voluntarism, that we just get to decide who we're obligated to. Persons have interconnected obligations to one another, even if they don't want them. And so I, I think that that um, hampers the, the bodily autonomy argument, you know, the nature of personhood with these conflicts. Got you. Thank you for that. Okay, Daniel. Hey, Majesty of Reason, Joe Schmidt. Legend. Good to have you here, buddy. What's Glad up, Joe? <laughs> Cheers, cheers to Joe. <laughs> cheers to Joe. Amen. He's done one okay, of these before is... too, actually. People should yeah. go watch. He did one with Randall Rouser. Yeah, the Devil's got, Advocate. Great today. channel. Yeah. Great channel. Um, okay, final question. <laughs> final question. Okay, Jen. So what is the relationship between the advocate and what is good for us? Sorry, what is the relationship between what we advocate and what is good for us? Surely being pro-something, choice or life, is to suggest it enhances overall well-being so we're going to start with trent and then finish with ben if that's okay uh, yeah what what i would say is that depends on your particular philosophical view of, of good and bad of of what constitutes particular goods so um natural law theory is cashed out in different ways like classical natural law theory would say that our basically our, our the highest good as human beings is is god and reason orders us towards that um, new natural law theory would also recognize that, but it would also recognize other uh, basic goods, things that are just good and to act again. It is always wrong to act against them. Uh, life, uh, friendship, for example, uh, these these kinds of things are they are they are always good and we, we ought not act against them. Uh, so we, we should advocate for that, which is that which is good There's just an ancient maxim anyone could follow do good and avoid evil is kind of the first lesson of morality. Ben, over to you. Yeah. So what we advocate for is our motivations. Um, it's a subjective feature of us. Um, what is good for us, I would argue is objective and it's normative. It's not a mode. It can't be cashed out in purely non-normative terms like our motivations can be. We're going to have to make use of the concept of a reason and uh, an appeal to things like principles. Um, and so 
surely being pro something is to suggest it enhances overall well-being. Um, what I would want to say is that whatever the question to abortion ends up being, it's going to have to be consistent with the idea that acting in these ways will make things go impartially best. So what does a partial impartial bestness look like in each scenario? And so I would say that impartially best in the pro-life camp looks like preventing the unjustified killing of individuals with a right to life, whereas the pro-choice position is going to see impartially best as not limiting the, um, unjustly limiting the freedoms of women to choose um, how to control not only their bodies, but their futures. Um, so that's what it would broadly look like. I hope that answers that question. It's good. Um, I think we might actually have a final question. We're meant to do five. We only had four. So this is technically the fifth one. Um, and okay. it's from the one and only Real Atheology. So there we go. Okay, question. What is Trent's opinion on David Orderberg's famous paper, Why Abortion Isn't Important, where he argues there are bigger metaphysical issues that abortion than abortion is a symptom of? Yes, uh, I was actually reading that paper not too long ago. And I think it's great. Well, I think it's good. Now, it's interesting. I have seen other people, Catholics or pro-life, people who claim to be pro-life, who have claimed abortion is not important. And uh, I've really disliked their takes, as you can imagine. Uh, Oderberg is a very good philosopher. He has a great book on the metaphysics of good and evil that I would highly recommend. Um, and I think that this is right. This This kind of goes back to it's something I want to research in the future. Ben and I were chatting about this in, in Houston before our debate. Uh, and I said to him, I said, you know, ben, what I find interesting, it's like it's hard to get atheists to agree on like anything. They can't even agree on what atheism is. You know, it's like, you know, it's atheism's like hurting cats. You, did, you didn't have to bring up that embarrassing point. <laughs> I think it's, it becomes, you know, it, it's get that's hard. But when I look at religious and non-religious groups and their views on abortion, Atheists are more united in their support of abortion uh, than any other group. So like even among Catholics and Christians and Protestants, are like 87%, like evangelicals, uh, you can find a significant number of people who believe abortion is not immoral. Uh, and that's even with a magisterium and people teaching you and saying, here's what you ought to believe. So it's amazing to me that like all these people who happen to not believe in God also don't see anything have the, this very uniform moral position. Now that could be a coincidence. It could be tribalism. It could just be, we all happen to be politically liberal and we all stick together. It could be a cruder reason, or it could be that uh, your fundamental meta metaphysical views about what reality consists of. Is it merely material? Is there something beyond the material? Uh, are humans collections of mental states? Are they organisms? Is what the body does fundamentally important? Those fundamental metaphysical questions, I do believe even people who don't think about them have an implicit idea of them. And that's going to color because in ethics, you know, we have meta ethics like what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. Uh, we have ethical theories like consequentialism, virtue theory. And then we have applied ethics like what do you do about abortion? What do you do about euthanasia? I think a lot of people just start with applied ethics and they don't think it through very well. Good people should try to figure out ethical theories and the philosophers go right back to meta ethics. Like, well, 
where do I start? And where you start is going to color where you end up. So I think that point of Oderberg's paper is is well taken. So I, I certainly remember the conversation that Trent uh, and I had in Houston, um, where he mentioned to me, um, you know, it's this um, observation that most atheists are pro-choice. And um, one of the things that I, that it drew my attention to was kind of how un, underrepresentative the secu- secular pro-life community is in skeptic circles. So one of the aims that I wanted to try to, um, as far as raising the level of discourse in this conversation is to, to give more of a platform to the secular pro-life movement too. Cause I suspect, um, that, the observation is caused by political tribalism. I think that there's a large pro-life movement and the reaction to that, the anti-religion, the anti-theist, anti-God type reactionary, you know, react to that. And that that's why you see so much uniform. Um, but then again, I'm just speculating. I can't, I don't have any empirical data to back that up. Um, that's why I said I thought, someone should do work on it. It's a very interesting, like it's I'm an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting why. observation. I can only speculate about it. Um, but I, th- it definitely drew my attention. I was like, secular pro-life needs a spot at the table because I think as my argument showed tonight, like there is a hill for pro-choice defenders to climb here that there are plausible, secular, naturalistic, feminist compatible, um, principles that we can appeal to that seem to imply that well what's what's more wrong yeah what's what's weird ben it's like and you can understand this because you guys always try to be thoughtful real atheology and most people aren't whether they're atheist or or not unfortunately it's i mean it's interesting in online discourse it's almost like atheists will say atheism is just a lack of belief you can't say anything else about us and then if you're an atheist who claims to be pro-life or uh, holding a traditionally religious moral opinion for secular reasons, you're a crypto theist. You're a, almost like there's these hidden dogmas of atheism. I, I lack a belief in a right to continued existence. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I mean, it's, and I think it'd be good, you know, if you're a free thinker, it's like, hey, because my favorite example of this actually is Christopher Hitchens was asked about this once, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, about abortion. And he said, you know, the, roughly, there are things in religion that are patently silly that you can just dismiss. Uh, the pro-life view that it's wrong to kill an unborn human is not one of them. That's a serious view that people could hold. And I, I think for me, if an, if atheists can at least say, huh, that's a serious position, I would, I would be happy to at least start there and go from there. I'm not confident the majority of my atheist peers would concede that point, but I'm trying. Well... <laughs> Both of us have to evangelize, my friend. There you go. (laughs) Oh, strange. We've lost him. Yeah, I don't know why. Hmm. So much for a right to continue virtual existence. Yeah, that's gone. Well, Um, well, thank you for having both of us. So, yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I was going to give both of you a chance to kind of just um, let people know where they can find you. Um, essentially, and I think we have him back. Hey, he's he's not sure, not sure what happened. I was like, Oh, I guess I said something and they kicked me out. <laughs> you were done. Um, no, I, I don't know what happened either. Sorry about that. So, anyway, I was just trying to say basically, I want to give both of you the chance just to let people know where they can find your work, they can go and get involved with more of the stuff you're doing. So, let's start with Trent. Trent, where can people find you and, and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I would just say they could go to my podcast, The Council of Trent, C O O U N C O U N S E L, Council of Trent on youtube um 
uh, Apple iTunes, Google Play. So just search Council of Trent. You can support us at trenornpodcast.com. And you can find a lot of my work at catholic.com, uh, which is the website of uh, Catholic Answers. Amazing. Ben, where can people find you, mate? Um, so my name is Ben Watkins, and I am one of the hosts of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast, where we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from non-theistic perspectives and see what we can make the philosophy of religion look like after we rejected something like perfect being theism. Amazing. Yeah. Trent, Ben, it's been so good having you on the on the podcast and on the YouTube channel today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Amazing. Oh, that was absolutely fantastic. Being able to talk to both Trent and Ben um, about such a big conversation, such a big topic. But uh, I think we've got some amazing insights there into sort of, um, yeah, their arguments, their minds and and how things work. Um, I want to thank especially Daniel and Roger. Daniel's been in in the chat himself popping up the the messages for us. So Daniel, thank you so much. Roger, you've been in the background collating and presenting stuff as well in the YouTube chat. So thank you too for that. And um, and the audience, thank you for everybody who's been in the live chat, who's been engaging. And thank you as well for everybody who's going to watch this in the future and hopefully comment as well. I hope this is a useful conversation. I hope it shows the importance of real honest discourse and how we can get better and better at our conversations if we keep trying to be open and honest with our views and other people's views as we move forwards um yeah just a reminder to like subscribe and hit the notification bell and uh, yeah it's been amazing having this conversation so i'll say bye-bye for now take care everybody cheers i hope you enjoyed this week's episode as always to leave any comments or thoughts please head on over to youtube And to follow us on social media, or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality, and I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.